0: The words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. I wondered how you responded as you heard those readings this morning, particularly the reading from Joshua and the reading from Matthew. Three words that stand out for me that describe my response are they were difficult, they were challenging, and they were inviting. 18 years ago, Bonnie and I were I had again been on sabbatical and we finished the last bit of that was at Iona Abbey on the island of Iona in Scotland and on the last night um, there was a service where we kind of gathered and gave thanks for our time together with those who'd also journeyed during that week with us Uh, and the theme of that service was uh, God's love enduring forever and as part of that the minister who was leading that had uh, decided to use Psalm 136, which has as its refrain, God's love endures forever. Here's part of it. To him who struck down great kings, God's love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, God's love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, God's love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, God's love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, God's love endures forever. An inheritance to a servant Israel, God's love endures forever. Now, I found that a really, really difficult psalm. And I, had, I stopped saying God's love endures forever. Earlier that year, I had been to Israel and uh, I'd been to a meeting, and part of that, with, um, part of that we had um, Christians in Israel, a Palestinian, and so we'd spent time with Palestinians. Uh, we heard stories of Palestinians, Then I went on a tour with a Jewish tour group and heard some of the other side of that, some of which made me very uncomfortable. And then I spent the last week uh, both with uh, a colleague of mine in Nazareth and then back down in the old city of Jerusalem. And I'd heard the other side of that psalm. I'd heard the side of that, uh, the catastrophic side of that. So while that psalm talks about God's love enduring forever, the gaining of the land was great for Israel, the loss of that land for those people would have been catastrophic. And my struggle is that that psalm and the reading we heard from Joshua today And other passages throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, are used to justify the ongoing taking of Palestinian land today. So on the wall here we have a picture of the Nakba wall in Nazareth, which keeps getting painted over by Jews who live in Nazareth. It is one of the things that separates Jews from Palestinians how they remember the events of 1948. So for Jews, 1948 is the year of the War of Liberation, when the State of Israel is established and Jews have a safe place in the world to live without fear of persecution. For Palestinians, it's known as the Nakba, the Great Catastrophe, when at least 700,000 Palestinians either fled or were pushed out of their villages, off their land, by Zionist militias, and they moved. Some stayed within Israel, so Nazareth went from being a Palestinian Christian city to being a Palestinian Muslim city from the influx of refugees from the surrounding countryside. But then we have refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, uh, and uh, many of those people moved into what was then the Transjordan, which is now the West Bank, including next to Bethlehem and down in Gaza. 700,000 people. Actually, some people make that 750,000 people. Now, that doesn't count the 15,000 people or so uh, who lost their lives during that conflict, Palestinians who lost their lives, villagers whose villages were surrounded and massacred. And so these, these two stories of the foundation of Israel, the War of Liberation, a great event, the Nakba, the great catastrophe and the trouble is that those events continue today as Zionist settlers continue to colonize land on the West Bank and in East Jerusalem moving Palestinians out of their land out of their out of their places out of their houses and building new illegal settlements which make the two-state solution, harder and harder and harder. And the difficulty for me, not only is all of that, but the biblical passages like Psalm 136 and like the Joshua reading we heard today, which are used to justify that. God gave Israel this land 3,000 years ago so Palestinians should leave and allow people of god to be there where are they supposed to go well they don't have an answer that i mean one person told me they should go home and i went they're not allowed to go home they're not allowed to go anywhere near their homes their homes are now they're outside of the west bank they're outside of israel they are not allowed home I also find that Joshua reading difficult because of the ideas around uh, the image of God that it presents. A God who does harm to those who reject him. A God who does not forgive our transgressions. And that challenges my understanding of God, which is based on how Jesus talks about God and how Jesus lives out divine love and also my own experience of that love. So that reading is both difficult and challenging. But it is also inviting. It invites me to reflect on what it means for me to choose to live in God. And it invites me to think about what are the foreign gods that distract me, distracts my focus from God and colours my image of God. What is it that says this is more important or this is what God is really about? Things like well, consumerism, things like individualism. This is all about me, it's all about my wealth, it's all about my comfort, it's all about my status, it's all about me. Well, I don't for a moment think that any of that has to do with God. And yet, too often we wrestle with that. The Gospel reading this morning is also difficult and challenging and inviting. One of the things that makes it difficult is that it's set in a different time and so the kind of cultural assumptions that go with that are entirely different from ours today and because of that it's really easy to get caught up in the details. And part of the problem with that is we forget that this isn't an actual event. This didn't happen. This is a story that Jesus tells to make a point. So on Tuesday, when we talked about this passage in our um, midweek Eucharist, uh, one of the people there said, well, she just blamed the bridegroom for all of this. He was clearly just mucking her about and being tardy. And if he'd been on time, as he should have been, none of this would have happened. Which misses the cultural point that actually he is off in that time. Gathering the bride and her family. So if anyone is to blame, it's them. But also, it's a story. It didn't happen. There is no bridegroom, there is no bride, there are no bridesmaids, virgins. First problem. And it misses the point of what Jesus is trying to tell here. Also, you know, a lot of people get tied up in the fact that the five virgins, bridesmaids who took extra oil didn't share. That feels wrong, doesn't it? You'd think in a biblical story that they would share, but they don't. So even commentators get hung up on that. I think one of the ways that we can keep uh, all this in mind and... um, And to kind of keep it in context is to remember the three audiences that are always involved in a gospel story so the first audience is jesus and who is he talking to so who is jesus telling this story to so jesus is telling a story this story to his disciples and they are journeying down from the Mount of olives towards the kidron valley so bonnie and i walked this route the traditional route uh, and it's um, near the top. Uh, the church that's built on the traditional side of this is called the Paternoster, Um but actually it was originally the church where Jesus gave his apocalyptic teaching. And straight down below him is uh, Gethsemane. So I want you to remember that. And across the valley, the Kidron Valley, is would have been the temple. So now it's Haram al-Sharif, with Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, now, uh, then, it would have been Herod's magnificent temple. And this whole conversation begins uh, with the disciples kind of going, wow, look at that, it's it's amazing. Can we ever see anything more magnificent, beautiful than that? And Jesus saying, "Uh, well, you know, don't get too attached because that's going to get destroyed. And, And they going, what? What? We cannot imagine that kind of catastrophe. When will that happen? So this is part of Jesus' answer to that question, when will this happen? But it's also Jesus getting his disciples ready for what is about to happen. Because what is about to happen is they will continue down that hill across the Kidron and into Jerusalem. And a week later, Jesus will be crucified. So everything is going to turn pear-shaped. It's going to be catastrophic. And so he is... Trying to encourage them to first of all to be prepared, to be awake, to be, uh, but also uh, to be motivated to carry on the work that they have been doing with him. He will no longer be there. They need to be engaged in that work. So that's that's Jesus and that's his audience. That's what he is trying to do in this last of five blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel. But there's also Matthew's audience. So Matthew isn't writing a history here. He's writing a book of theology. And so when he writes his gospel, he constructs it, shapes it in a very different way from Luke or Mark or from John. But John is the kind of outlier in all of this. And he, more than any of the others, has a lot more about apocalyptic stuff. The end times, the destruction of Jerusalem and or and with Christ coming again. And so Matthew is writing to it, and it's, it's a lot more. So Mark has very little, Luke has more, but nowhere near as much as Matthew. Matthew is the apocalyptic guy. Uh, and he is writing, tradition tells us, to, a, and certainly reading his gospel, to a Jewish community. So these are people who uh, saw themselves as Jews uh, and saw Christianity as part of Judaism but it's generally understood this gospel is being written after the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, after hundreds of thousands were either killed or taken away as slaves, and the and the Jewish population is just dispersed because they're no longer allowed to live in that part of the world. Uh, and add to that trauma because they are Jews and the temple was central to their sense of who they are and how they worship God, but also mixed in all that as they are now being evicted from the synagogues by other Jews who do not see them as Jews anymore. They see them as apostate. And so they're starting to get persecuted from their, their brothers and sister Jews and the Roman authorities. And in terms of thinking about the coming of Christ, some of them are saying, well, look, these events are the kind of things that should have happened before Christ comes, They've happened. Why hasn't he come? So Matthew is telling these stories in answer to those people. Those people are the bridesmaids. Those people are the ones holding their lamps. And some of those lamps are going out. And then the last group of people, well, it's us. We're the last audience. So Jesus is speaking to us through Matthew's gospel. And the question is always for us, what is Jesus saying to us in this story? Central in the story is the image of the wedding, which, uh, particularly for the prophets, and Jesus picks this up, is an image of the coming reign of God's justice and love, the kingdom of God. Uh, So the prophets use that image all the time when humanity and God are married and live together as we should live together. And Jesus mirrors that image of the wedding feast. He tells stories about it. Um, but he also mirrors it every time he eats with the wrong people. When he eats with the wrong people, he blesses them. He honors them. Uh, and that really gets up the, up the nose of the of. Of the leaders, the religious leaders, uh, and because society and their religion said those people are outside, they do not belong to us. They are beyond God's favor and grace. And Jesus keeps saying they are the center of Jesus, God uh, of God's grace and and forgiveness. And we, every time we gather around the table, the Eucharistic table, we reenact those meals. I think we've forgotten that but we do we reenact those because that's what jesus was doing at the last supper he was reminding them of that last of all those meals and inviting them to carry that way of living on so what does the kingdom of god look like well jesus talks about it in all the gospels i mean he lives it out but he also teaches. And so Jesus' first block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel is way back at a hill above Capernaum where those uh, first disciples uh, had, uh, had decided to follow him, to leave the lives that they had lived in Capernaum behind. And they were now sitting on that hill looking down at Capernaum and listening to Jesus as he taught them that the most important people are the poor in spirit those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. And in the rest of that Sermon on the Mount he teaches about how they were to be light to this and salt. They were to live the world where all flourish, where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, and where all are treated with honor and respect and all are given what they need to thrive a world where the relationship between God's creation and humanity is restored that is what the reign of God looks like that is the wedding party that is happening behind the shut doors now that image is challenging because of the image of the bridegroom who shuts the door and on the five unprepared virgins it kind of says to me we don't stay awake we're not allowed in 20th if we don't stay alert uh, you're out and that is a challenging image but it's also inviting that's a weird thing to say but it is inviting because well It seems a long way from the Beatitudes and living out the Beatitudes. And I'm invited to remember what happens after the story. And so after the story, uh, we have down the bottom of the hill where Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is with his disciples and he tells them in a little grotto off to the side, That they are to wait there for him while he goes and prays. And he takes his inner circle with him. And he goes into the olive grove garden. And he tells them to wait and to pray with him. To stay awake. To stay alert while he goes to pray. And when he comes back he finds the inner circle asleep. And he finds the disciples asleep. They are not alert. They are not awake. They are unprepared. They are the five asleep asleep. Unprepared bridesmaids they wake to the coming of armed guard who arrest Jesus and take him away and most of those men flee they are not prepared to stay the women stay John and Peter stay but they get near the party the trial where Peter is asked three times do you know this man and three times he says no and then he runs away So only John and the woman stay. So what's Jesus' response to all those disciples who mirror the unprepared bridesmaids? Does he say, well the door's shut, you didn't listen, you're out, on your bikes, off you go. No. He embraces them with forgiveness and mercy. The resurrected Christ gathers them together again to be into the party into all that the reign of God is about. And so we are invited with those disciples in our times of failure to know that the Beatitudes are a long way away from being lived out. And at the moment it seems to be getting further away each day. And so we join Matthew's community in knowing that there is a lot of waiting to do. And there are times when we will fail in that waiting. And that's fine. But we're also invited to be with them like those streetwise or sensible virgins who did fall asleep with the other virgins, but who are prepared to faithfully wait for that time when the bridegroom returns. And to live as if the bridegroom has returned and that the party has started. It's a big, big invitation. So, what did you find difficult in those readings? And what did you find challenging? And what did you find incite- inviting? I also wonder, what does the oil in our lamps represent? Now I could tell you that. But I think it's more important than you work that out for yourselves. And how do we keep our lamps burning so that we might be, as Christ said in the the Sermon on the Mount, light to the world, salt of the earth? How do we do that? Well, I want to finish with a quote from Robert Capon in uh, uh, one of the sources that I read. Watch, therefore, Jesus says at the end of the parable you know neither the day nor the hour. When all is said and done, when we have scared ourselves silly with the now or never urgency of faith and the once and always finality of judgment we need to take a deep breath and let it out with a laugh. Because what we are watching for is a party and that party is not just down the street making up its mind when to come to us. It's already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes, laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It's all part of the divine lark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been chipped. He is a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him, but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. So I invite you to have a conversation about, well, any of that, and then we'll pray.